0: Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Friday, January 20. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, the headline story is Union Ingredient Reach Tentative Deal, this story by Marissa Payne. Union workers have tentatively struck a deal with Ingredient officials that may soon bring an end to its months-long strike against the company's Cedar Rapids facility, the union president said Thursday. Mike Moore, the principal and president of Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union, Local 100G, said he and his committee are reviewing the tentative agreement with a fine-toothed comb. If everything pans out, we will get it to our members, hopefully within the next 24 hours, Moore said. If that is successful, Moore said he plans to spend the con- or, excuse me, send the contract, to a vote on Sunday at Teamsters Hall, where about 105 union members could opt to ratify the contract. That would bring an end to the strike that began August 1st. Earlier this month, four sticking points remained. A proposed schedule change for the maintenance department, pay scale for paid time off, requirements for workers to learn an additional job, and an amnesty clause to protect striking workers from discipline. It's a big relief off my shoulders and off my committee's shoulders, Moore said. Moore said in the coming weeks he hopes the union workers can all take a breath and gather their thoughts. He said some members on the picket line have families and had to make ends meet during the strike, so they had to find other jobs to get by. It remains to be seen whether they stay in those jobs or return, Moore said, but he hopes those workers are coming back. My main goal is to get everybody back to work, Moore said. We went out as one. We go back in as one. Becca Harry, Ingredient Corporate Communications Director, said in a statement that Ingredient is pleased to have reached a tentative four-year contract with union workers at its Cedar Rapids manufacturing facility. From the very start of these negotiations, our number one priority has been reaching an agreement that provides very competitive wages, comprehensive benefits, and enhanced conditions for our people to ensure the successful operation of our facility and our continued vital role in the community, Harry wrote. We are hopeful that our employees will vote to ratify this contract and return to work. Cedar Rapids Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell said arriving to a tentative agreement must be a relief to the workers who've been striking for more than 20 weeks. Ingredient is an important part of our community, as are its loyal and dedicated workers, O'Donnell said. It's my hope that we can all put this behind us and support the company and the teams as they get back to work. In a September guest column to the Gazette, the nine-member Cedar Rapids City Council wrote, There are no winners in a protracted labor strike, and encouraged the union and company to sit down together and bargain in good faith. As a city, we did our best to support efforts to bring both parties together, recognizing that they are both important and valued members of our community, O'Donnell said, This is a relief for us, and I can't imagine how much of a relief it is to those who haven't had a paycheck for weeks. State Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, said in a tweet that he stands in solidarity with the workers. If this agreement is fair for the workers involved and the contract is approved, this is great news, Sheets wrote. The strike has garnered national attention. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont has weighed in and criticized James Zellie, the chief executive officer of the Westchester, Illinois-based company. In a January 13 letter to, to Zellie, Sanders urged ingredient officials to bargain in good faith with the workers as the strike stretched beyond 23 weeks. The time has come for ingredient to bargain in good faith and offer a contract that is fair, and that is just, instead of trying to discipline or even fire striking workers for exercising their constitutional right to strike, Sanders wrote. Also on the front page, this story by Brittany Miller, eco-friendly, question mark, and this includes a photo of used wind turbines. Wind energy was responsible for 58% of Iowa's electricity in 2021, the highest share for any state according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. It powered about 9% of the nation's utility-scale electricity generation. But the 60,000-plus wind turbines scattered across the country have a shelf life, about 20 years, depending on damage and maintenance repowering turbines when they are retrofitted with updated technology also creates waste traditionally decommissioned turbine blades have been sent to landfills but in recent years recycling the often 100 or excuse me 100 plus foot long blades has become a new more sustainable disposal method among companies in Iowa and the Midwest The most recent addition to recycling options comes from Regen Fiber, a new Iowa business born from the Alliant Energy subsidiary Trevero, which last week announced its new mechanical method for repurposing turbine blades. Its forthcoming Fairfax facility should be able to recycle more than 30,000 tons of shredded blade materials annually once its operations Begin later this year. Regen Fiber touts its patent pending process as eco friendly. Although many of the details are still under wraps, some experts say the company's announcement is a step in the right direction for making wind energy more green by repurposing its waste stream without using chemicals or heat. It's proprietary. All we can do is guess as to what it is they're doing, said Steve Geyer the Iowa Environmental Council's Energy and Climate Policy Specialist. But I hope that it is up to the billing. I think it's great that they're having a facility like that in Iowa. Representatives of Trevero, a logistics company that doesn't impact Alliant Operations or customer bills, wouldn't share many specifics about their blade recycling methods with the Gazette as they await a patent. But they did say it's a mechanical process that chews up decommissioned blades and blade manufacturing scrap materials and spits out shredded virgin fibers, those of similar quality as fibers made from manufacturers. This is a solution for both ends of the life cycle of a wind turbine blade, said Tushan Hemachandra, Trevero's lead of marketing. The technologies used in the process bridge several different industries, including recycling, forestry, and agricultural segments. They also remove wood and foam that's manufactured into blades and turn them into a coal fly ash replacement that stabilizes soil for construction pro- projects. Regen Fiber started piloting the process in 2021 at a Des Moines facility ensuring the fibers met performance standards for the concrete industry. The company is upgrading to a manufacturing facility in Alliant Energy's Big Cedar Industrial Center, the largest industrial site in Iowa, next to a Trevero warehouse in Fairfax. The recycled end products can be used to reinforce materials like concrete and asphalt. Years ago, Sri Sridharan, an Iowa State University structural engineer and wind energy initiative lead and his colleagues researched how to deconstruct turbine blades for use in concrete. A 2016 thesis from one of his students found that fibers from the blades could come at high costs and compromise the strength and durability of concrete. Sridharan said he is pleased to see a company making more headway in the field. It just comes down to how cost-effectively you can extract the fiber, so maybe they have figured out how to do it, he said. I think it's a good pathway forward. Wind turbine blades can be recycled with heat, chemical, and mechanical means, and end products vary depending on the process. Veolia, a French company that manages water, waste, and energy, recycles blades at its Louisiana, Mississippi facility using heat. The structures are ground up and thrown into a cement kiln, the process emitting 27 percent less greenhouse gas emissions than traditional cement production, according to reporting by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Vestas, an Oregon-based wind turbine company, has a facility in Marengo that also co processes blade materials with cement. The company processed more than 2,000 tons of recycled materials in 2022, said Grady Howell, the company's program manager of blade recycling. Other facilities use chemicals to recycle their turbine blades, which could be dangerous. Jeff Woods, Trevero's director of business development, referenced the December blast at C60 a Maringo facility that says it recycles shingles that injured up to 15 people and forced an evacuation of nearby homes. It's a separate industry, but that process that happened down there was chemically based, Woods said, not saying our competitors, if you will, or others in the space would run into that, but they're using a similar chemical-based process. Regen fiber's recycling process doesn't release thermal emissions or carbon into the atmosphere, like combustion does, nor does it require the use of potentially dangerous chemicals. Thus, Trevero representatives call it eco-friendly. The company's mechanical methods also capture dust created during the process, which will be used for soil stabilization projects. Additionally, they require reasonably low energy use compared with other industrial processes, Woods said, sporting smaller motors. It's unclear exactly how much energy the process requires. How much energy is it going to take to actually separate these fibers? I don't know, Geyer said, but anytime someone goes down that path, I always go back to... If we envision a 100% renewable future, then not using chemical and heat is eco-friendly. Before recycling methods were an option, spent turbine blades around the country were sent to landfills. Since turbine blades are made to be durable, they're hard to break apart and don't compact well, which makes them take up more capacity. A 2021 study projected that Iowa's turbine fleets would be responsible for just under 140,000 metric tons of decommissioned blades by the year 2050. Mid-American Energy used to landfill its decommissioned blades, but now recycles or repurposes them. Although none of Alliance turbines have reached the end of their lifespan, The company said Regen Fiber provides an option for Alliant Energy to recycle its wind blades when the time comes. It's unclear how many of Iowa's landfills have taken turbine blades in the past. Des Moines' Metro Waste Authority, which operates the biggest landfill in the state, doesn't accept them. Neither does the Cedar Rapids Lynn County Solid Waste Agency's landfill in Marion. The Newton Sanitary Landfill in central Iowa has accepted about a dozen decommissioned turbine blades in the last 10 years, said Jody Roan, Newton's public works director. But piles of the parts remain around Jasper County. After Global Fiberglass Solutions, a company focused on fiberglass waste, fell back on its promise to recycle a combined 1,300 blades. The blades scattered around his county make Roan skeptical of more blade recycling attempts, although he is optimistic that a company like Regen Fiber could crack the code. I've just seen so many of these attempts that never came to fruition, he said. I want to see it proven, done, working, have a market for the byproduct or the product, all of that before I make judgment on that. Turning now to page 2 on the Iowa Today page, Utility Rate Hikes Coming for Residents of Iowa City, this story by Isabella Zaluska. Challenges lie ahead as Iowa City and other local governments navigate the municipal budget process amid cost increases, inflation, and supply chain issues, in addition to financial pressures from property tax reform. Iowa City is paying close attention to these challenges as it discusses the fiscal 2024 budget, which starts July 1, as well as what the potential long-term impacts could be, Assistant City Manager Rachel Kilberg told the Iowa City Council earlier this month. Kilberg said the city is in a strong financial position, but these are very real challenges. Residents can expect utility rate increases. The property tax rate is proposed to stay the same, but the tax bill Residency could change with property assessments. The proposed fiscal 2024 budget represents $219.6 million in all expenditures. The fiscal year 2023 budget approved last year was $194 million. The general fund is just under one third of the total budget at 67.8 million and includes services such as police, fire, parks and recreation, and general government. General fund operations are largely funded by property taxes. The property tax rate is proposed to stay the same and not inch down as it has. The budget proposes a property tax rate of $15.63 per 1000 of taxable valuation, which is the same as fiscal 2023. The city's property tax rate has decreased every year from fiscal 2012 to fiscal 2023. The owner of a house whose taxable value is $100,000 would pay $883 in city property tax in fiscal 2024, an increase of $35 from the last fiscal year. One of the reasons the city wasn't able to decrease the rate in fiscal 2024 is because the overall tax base isn't growing at the rate the city needs, Kilberg said. As we keep an eye on our growth in general, we may need to actually consider the increases in the future if things don't improve, Kilberg said. Various utility rate increases are proposed for fiscal 2024. The water rate is anticipated to increase by 4%, which is about $1.50 more per month for the average user, according to the city. The wastewater rate will increase by 2%, which is about $2.85 more per month. There will be a $2 per month increase for the refuse and recycling rate, as well as a 50-cent-per-month increase for the stormwater rate. City staff again reminded the City Council of the challenges ahead with setting the city budget with property tax reform. The Iowa legislature passed a historic property tax reform in 2013 and pledged to backfill some of the losses with lower taxes to local governments. But a law in 2021 phased out the backfill. Iowa City's backfill of $1.5 million a year started to be phased out in fiscal 2023. The impact will be a loss to the city government of $7 million over five years. The 2013 law changed the property taxes paid by multi-residential properties, which Kilburg said the city is feeling the most impact from in the fiscal 2024 budget. Multi-residential properties, such as apartments, were treated as commercial buildings before 2013, meaning taxes were paid on the full building value. After the reform, multi-residential properties were taxed, a rate that decreased each year. In fiscal 2024, the multi-residential rollback rate, on which taxes are partly calculated, will be the same as the single-family residential rate at 56.49%. There is an estimated loss of $150 million in taxable value, Kilberg said. That loss translates into $3 million in lost property tax revenue for the city in fiscal 2024. Adding to fiscal financial pressures is uncertainty about what the state legislature might do in this 2013 legislative session, Kilberg said. Republican lawmakers have said property tax is a top priority and everything's on the table as far as changes. The City Council will hold a public hearing on the proposed budget and adopt a resolution setting the maximum property tax on February 21st. A month later, on March 21st, the Council will hold a public hearing and adopt the budget. Also on the Iowa Today page is a photo of two people in the ice, or in the water, in an ice situation, and the caption reads, Cedar Rapids Fire Department firefighter Jesse Lennox pulls a rescue sling to wrap around simulated victim Captain Luke Moss on Thursday night during the department's annual ice rescue training at Noel Ridge Park in Cedar Rapids. Firefighters wearing survival suits practiced rescuing colleagues from a hole cut in the ice. Firefighters also practiced self-rescues using ice awls integrated into their survival suits. Turning now to the Insight page, the Gazette's editorial is titled, Stop the Insult on SNAP, or SNAP. Food is a necessity of life. Hunger can hurt children's development, performance in school, and overall health. These are facts not up to debate. And yet, a bill in the Iowa House, House File 3, clearly seeks to make it more difficult for struggling Iowans to access food assistance through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. It would force recipients to constantly prove their eligibility set an asset test for the first time, and greatly reduce the list of foods they're allowed to buy. Perhaps the most dramatic change in the bill, as currently written, would replace the federally approved list of permissible foods with a much shorter list allowed under assistance to women, infants, and children, or WIC. Among the items SNAP recipients would be prohibited from buying is meat, except for canned tuna salmon, and baby food along with butter, flour, cooking oil, and even canned soup. The bill also mandates an asset limit for SNAP recipients of $2,750 per household or $4,250 if the household has one member 60 years or older. The limit exempts one vehicle, potentially denying food aid to households that own two cars. HF3 also creates an almost constant eligibility verification regimen that likely will trip up eligible families and cause them to lose SNAP payments. Although we understand there is a desire to make sure those getting SNAP benefits deserve them, designing a government system to try to do this on a live basis is foolish, vindictive, and punitive, and it will punish children and others who won't have enough to eat. It shifts the problem. The reality is that people need food, and an increasing number of people don't have enough. Nearly half of SNAP recipients are children disabled or elderly. HF3 is harmful government bureaucracy at its worst. If someone needs bread, they should be able to buy it. The legislature should not create endless hoops to jump through. This bill denies the realities and dignity of Iowans who need help affording food. Only two groups support the bill, Iowans for Tax Relief and the Opportunity Solutions Project, a Florida-based group that lobbies across the country for slashing public assistance programs and opposing policies such as Medicaid expansion. It has no stake in what happens in Iowa, except for notching another political win for its wealthy conservative donors. Previous bills of this kind have failed to gain traction at the Statehouse. A larger, more conservative GOP majority might change that, but what hasn't changed is the fact that this is misguided, unnecessary policy that should be rejected. And again, that is the Gazette's own editorial today. The guest column is from Nate Willems, Stealing wages is illegal theft. The recent report by Common Good Iowa finding that Iowa workers are robbed of $900 million annually by their employers should be a wake-up call. This report was the first of its kind in 10 years and found a 50% increase in stolen wages in Iowa over a decade. Most of the $900 million in stolen wages are a result of overtime violations. Failure to pay time and a half after 40 hours' work to eligible employees. There are a variety of ways people are cheated of overtime wages. Improperly classifying employees as FLSA-exempt, often called salaried workers. Improperly classifying employees as independent contractors, illegal deductions from workers' checks, time clock shaving, and etc. Common Good Iowa also found an additional $240 million in minimum wage violations. These stem from some of the same tactics as in overtime violations, but also include tip pool violations. For example, waitstaff at a restaurant can be paid a low minimum wage and can be required to pool tips, but it becomes illegal when management also allows non-tipped employees and managers to share in the tips given to wait staff. Food service represents the sector of the economy with the highest rate of violations, according to the report. Enforcement by the state of Iowa is also laughable. In a state with 3.2 million people, you can count the number of Iowa workforce development employees fighting wage theft with your fingers. Even when IWD does enforce the law, it only seeks to recoup wages and not the liquidated or penalty damages the law allows. In other words, without liquidated damages, the worst-case scenario for the employer is they received a zero-interest loan from the workers for a year or more. Private attorneys like myself bring lawsuits as some deterrent to bad employers one victory was achieved in 2022 when an Iowa federal judge ruled that an employer cannot skirt liquidated damages liability by simply paying the wages illegally late. However, as the report indicates, we are all just playing whack-a-mole. The financial risks for bad employers are insufficient. That is why the annual costs to Iowa workers have increased from 600 million 10 years ago to $900 million now. Rather than waiting for a Republican legislature to strengthen our wage payment laws or Kim Reynolds to devote more staff to the problem, there is a more immediate solution. Criminal prosecution. Iowa Code defines theft at seven point, excuse me 714.1. It states, A person commits theft when the person obtains the labor or services of another by deception. If the theft is of greater than $1,500, that is a Class D felony, punishable by up to five years in jail. If the theft is greater than $10,000, that is a Class C felony, punishable by up to ten years in jail. We have laws in place to deter wage theft but we simply need to recognize stealing money from workers is stealing. Enforcement need not come just from bureaucrats or plaintiff's lawyers, but it must also come from police officers and prosecution. Law enforcement can learn to treat wage theft like any other type of theft, but that shift in mentality must also be first embraced by workers and activists. And this column today is from Nate Willems, who is an attorney practicing in Cedar Rapids. We have two community letters today. The first is titled, Democracy to Collapse Over Fiscal Policy. In 1887, Alexander Tyler, a history professor at the University of Edinburgh, stated, A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up to the time that voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will collapse over loose fiscal policy. The question is, are we there yet? And that's signed by... Henry Royer of Cedar Rapids. In our second letter, Who Will You Believe on Educational Funding? We know that politicians often lie. Have you ever had a teacher lie to you? Iowa House Majority Leader Pat Grassley, Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, and Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds tell you that their proposal for taking tax dollars from our state treasury To subsidize private schools will not negatively impact our public schools. Teachers, school administrators, and school boards across the state say otherwise. Who are you going to believe? And that's signed by Jim Walters from Iowa City. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette today, Friday, January 20, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with the short notices. First from Cedar Rapids, Patricia J. Lowe, age 87, died Wednesday, January 18th, Iowa Cremation in Cedar Rapids. In Lansing, Arlene G. Jacobson, 92, formerly of New Alban, died Tuesday, January 17th, Thornburg Grau Funeral Home, Lansing. In Makokoda, Marvin Moore, 84, died Thursday, January 19th. Carson's Celebration of Life Center, Makokoda. In Olwine, Verna M. De Temmerman, 85, died Friday, January 19th. Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home, Olwine. In West Union, Virginia Elizabeth Schmelzer, 92, died Saturday, January 14th. Burnham Wood Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service, West Union. And in one other death, Edward Wolcott Metz, age 82, of Galesburg, Illinois, died Tuesday, January 17th. Hinchliffe Pearson West Funeral Directors and Cremation in Galesburg is assisting the family. Moving now to the regular notices, first from Iowa City, Charles L. Belcher, 78, of Iowa City died Monday, January second, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. No public services are planned at this time. Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service has cared for Charles's family and his arrangements. From Marion, Neva Louise Anderson Lanning, age 99, Passed away Wednesday, January eighteenth. Funeral service will be at eleven a.m. Saturday, January twenty-first, at the Albarnett United Methodist Church. Visitation begins at nine a.m. Burial will follow at Lafayette Cemetery in Alburnette. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting her family. Memorials in Neva's memory may be directed to the Alburnette United Methodist Church. From North Liberty, Herbert Stanley, known as Stan Thompson, age 90, died peacefully at his home at, in North Liberty on January 15, surrounded by his family. Stan founded the Iowa Neuroophthalmology Clinic and was its director for 30 years, and the clinic now bears his name. His interest in the workings of the pupil of the eye stimulated pupillary research in Iowa City and made Iowa known around the world as a place where unusual pupillary problems might be solved. He was known as a patient and kind teacher, having mentored dozens of fellows at the neuro-ophthalmology clinic. Online condolences can be left for the family at LansingFuneral.com. And in lieu of flowers, donations may be sent to Iowa City Hospice. There is no mention of service arrangements. From Manchester, Ralph Laverne Kephart, 83, passed away Wednesday, January eighteenth, at Regional Medical Center in Manchester. Online condolences can be sent to LeonardMullerFuneralHome.com. Funeral service is at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 23rd at First Presbyterian in Manchester with the Rev. Nathan Lamb officiating. Visitation is from 2 to 4, Sunday, January 22nd at First Presbyterian. Friends may also call on Monday at the church from 9 to 10 a.m. Interment will be at the Oakland Cemetery in Manchester. And Janice Marie Novak of Beaverton, Oregon, has uh, her obituary presented here. Visitation will be at 11 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Monday, January 23rd at Murdoch-Lindwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids Burial to follow the visitation at Rogers Grove Cemetery in Ely, Iowa. Jan would appreciate any donations. Go to her favorite charity, that makes sure those who are mentally ill get their timely medications. And that is Sequoia Mental Health, 4585 Southwest, 185th Avenue, Aloha, Oregon. Please share a memory of Jan at MurdockFuneralHome.com under obituaries. Turning now to the sports page, this story by Jeff Johnson in high school basketball Grieving Iowa Valley Powering Ahead There were hugs, so many hugs, there were tears, so many tears, and in the end, after Iowa Valley's boys basketball team had produced an amazing fourth-quarter comeback Tuesday night to beat Sigourney, there was one prevailing feeling. Dylan would have been proud. I know he was jumping up and down there. Iowa Valley senior guard even Kearney said, I know he was just excited, as excited as everyone else. He would get really pumped when we were playing sports, no matter what sport it was. Dylan Penning died January 9 at his parents' home in Marengo. He was a 16-year-old sophomore, a multi-sport athlete who was popular with his classmates. His death has devastated an entire community. Penning's funeral was held at the high school last Saturday. Just a good kid, a good family, said Iowa Valley coach Randy Carney. Very positive, a ton of friends, a good athlete. He was good to be around. Attentive, listened to what we had to say. He was just a normal kid. And, well, like everybody, I don't think I ever heard anyone ever say anything bad about Dylan. Penning was a starting guard for the Tigers. Always the kid that would make everyone laugh, Carney said. He always worked extremely hard. You would never not see him hustling. He always made sure everyone else was okay, that everyone else was laughing. As difficult as it is, Iowa Valley has decided to continue its season while it grieves. Dylan would have wanted that. They all agreed. The court has become a sanctuary for these kids and their coaches, a place to be together and comfort each other a place to remember their friend. There's no manual for dealing with this type of thing, so we were going by feel, said Carney, who's been the head coach for seven years. We went in last Wednesday, and I was going to have just shoot around, but they wanted to scrimmage and said, let's just pick teams and go up and down the floor. They had so much fun. They were smiling and laughing. They were joking. They were themselves. It was the best thing we could have done. At first, I honestly did not think we were going to play again, said Carney, a co-captain with fellow senior Beau Long. As a leader, that's not how we're supposed to think, but right away I was just like, there's no way I'll ever go back without Dylan. But I think he would have liked us to keep playing, and it means a lot to his family. Iowa Valley played its first game since the tragedy Tuesday night at home. Both teams wore special pinning 25 t-shirts during warm-ups. Kearney said the outpouring of love and support from Sigourney and other schools has been overwhelming. The team did not play well most of the game, falling behind by as many as 16 points in the second half. Then the fourth quarter began, and so the comeback. Iowa Valley outscored Sigourney by an 18-point margin at 30-12 to to win 62-56, with Kearney pouring in 22 of his high game 28 points. All of his points in the game came in the second half. The first half, nothing was falling, he said. Then, all of a sudden, it seemed like I couldn't miss, even if I was trying. It was just that I wanted to take over, and I knew we had to win that game. He was like, We are not going to lose, Carney said. Penning's grandparents attended the game, and the team posed for a photo with them at its conclusion. Very emotional, and afterward. Very, Carney said. I think everybody just kind of exhaled. They just felt better like they did something for Dylan. The rest of the season also is for him, they said. They know he'll be watching. In one sideline note, Cedar Rapids Kennedy's Lucas Dolphin rolled a perfect 300 game during the Cougars' Mississippi Valley Conference dual victory over Iowa City West last night at the Cedar Rapids Bowling Center. Dolphins' 557 series led Kennedy to the win. This boys' swimming story is by Mike Condon. Sometimes all that an athlete needs is an opportunity, no matter the circumstance. Look no farther than the Linmar boys' swimming team. Some who were expected to compete with the Lions this season chose to swim exclusively for their clubs this winter. Linmar coach Tom Bieland said he respected their decision. Those decisions provided openings for others, and they have taken advantage. Entering Saturday's Mississippi Valley Conference Super Meet, Linmar is ranked fifth in the state power rankings. Bieland's team, along with four-time defend—excuse me, four-time defending MVC champion Iowa City West and number nine Cedar Falls—are expected to be in a tight race for the championship. Saturday's meet is scheduled for a noon start at the Linmar Aquatic Center. On the Business 380 page, this side note, Amazon is ending its Smile charity arm. Amazon is winding down its charitable giving arm next month on grounds that its impact is often spread too thin. In a note to customers, Amazon said the program, Amazon Smile, launched in 2013, would be suspended February 20. To help ease the transition, participating charities will receive a one-time donation equaling roughly a quarter of what they received in 2022, the company said. Since its launch, the program has not grown to create the impact that we originally had hoped, the company said. Turning now to the living section, Ready for resistance is the article title, and this is by Gretchen Reynolds from the Washington Post. Lifting weights once a week for about 15 minutes using six basic moves could be all the resistance exercise most of us need to build and maintain full body strength, according to a big study of muscles, might, and practical time management. The study followed almost 15,000 men and women ages 18 to 80 for up to about seven years and found that performing once weekly a stripped down weight training routine focused on machines available at almost any gym increased people's upper and lower body strength by as much as 60 percent whatever their age or gender. The results suggest that a surprisingly small amount of weight training can produce outsized strength gains for most of us but they also raise questions about why, then, so few of us (coughs) ever lift at all. Being strong is obviously important for health and long-term well-being, said James Steele, an exercise scientist at Solent University in Southampton, England, who led the new study. Strong people tend to live longer, for one thing. A 2022 review of studies (coughs) about resistance training found that men and women who undertake strength training, no matter how infrequently, were about 15% less likely to die prematurely than those who did not lift. Resistance exercise can also reduce anxiety, aid in weight control, maintain and build muscle mass, improve thinking, control blood sugar, helps prevent falls, and generally bulk up our metabolism and moods, other studies showed. These effects often equal those of endurance activities such as walking or cycling and in some respects especially related to muscles and metabolic health may actually exceed them. Each person's weekly program was consistent and simple. They completed one set each of six common exercises using machines available in most gyms. They are in order chest press, pull down, leg press, abdominal flexion and back extension, hip adduction or abduction, alternating these hip exercises from week to week. During each exercise, people lifted the weight for 10 seconds and then returned the weight to its starting position during an additional 10 seconds, making sure to breathe throughout. They repeated each set on an individual machine until they reached what researchers call momentary failure, meaning they felt as if they could not immediately complete another repetition with proper form. Trainers tracked people's lifts and added weight once someone could easily complete more than about six repetitions of an exercise. The entire routine, with about 20 seconds between one machine and the next, required about 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how many repetitions of each exercise people managed. This small-time commitment resulted in substantial strength gains, Steele found, especially at the beginning. During the first year of lifting, most people's strength grew by about 30 to 50 percent, based on the weights they could manage during each workout. After that, almost everyone's gains leveled off, with most adding perhaps an additional 10 to 20 percent overall to their muscular strength in subsequent years. Also in the living section, this article is titled How to Deal with Fatty Liver Disease by Barbara Intermill, Tribune News Service. Question. After reading a recent column on spirulina M.H. from Nathan, Alabama, writes, Will spirulina have an adverse effect on fatty liver disease? And do you have other information or suggestions for dealing with fatty liver disease? And the answer. I'll answer your second question first because I have a lot of nutrition information about fatty liver disease. According to a 2019 review article on this subject, In the International Journal of Biological Sciences, a person's diet is one of the major factors that leads to the the development of fatty liver disease. The proper name for the condition is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD. That means it's not caused by alcohol, but it affects the liver in much the same way. One of the main factors that starts the process of the disease is what experts call overnutrition. In the case of NAFLD, an unbalanced intake of fat, sugars, and starches causes fat to be deposited in the liver. This eventually causes the liver to be inflamed and scarred. If not treated, the final stage is permanent liver damage called cirrhosis, similar to what is seen in chronic alcoholism. What's the treatment? Since overeating and obesity are major contributors to the disease, weight loss is key. One way to start is to cut back on fat in your diet, especially the saturated type. Excess fat turns into body fat very easily. And cut back on added sugar. For example, a 20-ounce bottle of soda contains 16 teaspoons of added sugar and 240 calories, with no nutritional benefit. Some foods may help reverse some of the symptoms of NAFLD, however. Among them are ones high in dietary fiber, found on a Nutrition Facts label for your reading pleasure. Find dietary fiber in foods that started their life in the ground. Vegetables, fruit, nuts, whole grains, beans, and other legumes. When you do eat fat, focus on the monounsaturated type known as MUFAs. They are found in foods such as olive, canola, and sunflower oils, along with soy, nuts, and avocados. Studies have shown a diet high in this type of fat can help reduce the accumulation of fat in the liver. Just don't eat the whole bowl of guacamole in one sitting. Other fats called polyunsaturated fats, or PUFAs, may also help in the treatment of NAFLD as well. The most popular of these fats are the omega-3s found in fish, flaxseed, and walnuts. With regard to your first question, a systemic review of randomized control trials published in 2019 in Complementary Therapies in Medicine found that spirulina is not only safe, but may also be an effective alternate treatment for fatty liver disease. Still, check with your doctor or pharmacist to make sure there are no known interactions with any medications you may be taking. And the author of the article, Barbara Intermill, is a registered dietitian nutritionist. Turning back to the Iowa Today page, two short stories to include... From Sioux City, a Sioux City man has been charged with first-degree murder in the death of a woman who was shot while she was on the phone with 911 emergency dispatchers, police said. Sarah Zoell called 911 Saturday night pleading for help and saying her boyfriend, Austin Self, was pointing a gun at her, according to court documents. During the call, the dispatcher heard what sounded like a gunshot, according to the complaint. And Self then told the dispatcher, I shot her, the Sioux City Journal reported. Officers found Zoelle holding a six-month-old child and suffering from a gunshot wound when they arrived. Two other young children were in the house. Zoelle later died at a hospital. Self, age 23 of Sioux City, also was charged with three counts of child endangerment. And from Lincoln, Nebraska, a bow hunting couple from Iowa have been sentenced to probation for conducting hunts at a central Nebraska guiding and hunting business, where numerous people have been convicted of violating federal laws that prohibit the tracking, excuse me, trafficking of wildlife. Federal prosecutors said the case against Josh Bomar, age 32, and Sarah Bomar, age 33 of Bomar Bowhunting, LLC of Ankeny, Iowa, ends all known prosecutions in a lengthy investigation that resulted in 39 convictions, the Lincoln General Star reported. The government contends Hidden Hills Outfitters near Broken Bow, its owners and others provided services to clients from around the country for the unlawful killing of nearly 100 animals. The Bomars pleaded guilty October 19 to a misdemeanor conspiracy charge. Four more serious charges, including illegally baited hunting sites, were dropped. They were sentenced January 12 to three years of probation and ordered to pay a $75,000 fine. They also were banned from any hunting activities in Nebraska during probation. U.S. Attorney Stephen Russell said the sentencing marks the end of prosecutions of known violations committed by owners, guides, and clients of Hidden Hills Outfitters. In all, 39 people were convicted and more than $750,000 in fines, restitutions, and forfeitures were collected during that case. Finishing up with the top weather story, Parts of eastern Iowa received a healthy batch of snow Thursday morning. There was a sharp cutoff from heavy snow to mixed precipitation, limiting snow totals south of Highway 20. Snowflakes are impacted by the environment they form in. At temperatures well below freezing, snow is fluffier and piles up quickly. When the temperature is closer to freezing, snow is wetter, heavier, and weighs down the snow it falls on. Changes in temperature through the atmosphere also can impact the snow's consistency and water-to-snow ratio. Just a small amount of wet heavy snow will quickly exhaust you when shoveling, while the same amount of fluffy snow could be easily cleared with just your leaf blower. Cloudy today and tomorrow, Cedar Rapids looking for a high of 27 today and a high of 28 tomorrow, and that is exactly the normal high for today, 28. The low, normal, is 11. A record high of 54 degrees was set in 1921, a record low of 22 below zero was set in 1985. Sunset tonight is at 5.06 p.m., sunrise tomorrow at 7.29 a.m., that leaves 9 hours and 37 minutes of daylight. And we are in the new moon, moon phase, Moon rise at 7.46 a.m. and set at 4.51 p.m. And that does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Friday, January 20. I'm your reader, Kathleen. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org anytime. Thanks for listening, and have a great, safe day.